Folks, if you're watching this, our live stream didn't work this morning, so we wanted to give you something at home to uh, chew on. Uh, I wanted to give you the sermon ahead of time, so I'm pre-recording it just in case the live stream didn't work, and we'll post this to Facebook. Uh, I hope you guys are having a good week. Uh, just remember, giving, you can go to the giving page at 68.org and uh, figure out how to give there if you're looking to give from home. Um, it's all laid out there very clearly. Uh, I want to remind you that community groups have started this uh, in the last few weeks, and we are really excited about them. A parenting group, another just a study group of a Bible book or, or the sermon, or um, and then we have a uh, an outrageous justice group that you know a number of us are going to be a part of. That um, we hope you you can join too if you want to. But it's uh, it'll eventually get us into a prison to run a class with them. So we're excited about these. We have some. Uh, we also have the prayer group running, and uh, we're excited about about every one of them. Um, also, lastly, I, I, I want to remind you that you have a free account with Right Now Media. Just go to the resources tab at the top of our website page, and. Um, Click on resources and then click on Right Now Media, and you can start your free account with Right Now Media. It's like Netflix for Christians. It it just has so many different videos and talks and stories and kids stuff and you know everything. Some community group leaders will use these things for their studies. Uh, I know some of you Villanova students are already using it. That's good. I'm really glad. Um, and I've gotten some words that others of you have really enjoyed it. So go on there right now. Right Now Media. You got a free account. It's all on us. So praise God for that. But let me pray before we get started. Father God, we pray that you would glorify the name of Christ above all else today. That that through this sermon, through these words, that, that anything Jason would drop away, that you would become greater, I would become less, that you would uh, shine through, that we would see what it truly means to follow you as our King and our Savior and our Lord and we pray, Father God, that you would convict us where we need to be changed, where we need to be continually transformed, and you would encourage our hearts where we might be feeling down. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Gosh, let's get into this. I want to start with a statement, and it says this. The glory of Christ ought to be the end of our life, the grace of Christ, the principle of our life, and the word of Christ, the rule of it. The Christian life is derived from Christ and directed to Him. He is the principal rule and end of it. Let me say that twice. The glory of Christ ought to be the end of our life, the grace of Christ the principle of our life, and the word of Christ the rule of it. The Christian life is derived from Christ and directed to Him. He is the principle, the rule, and the end of it. In short, that says to us that Christ is King. Christ is King in all things, right? Now, one of the greatest obstacles to a bold, courageous, Jesus-proclaiming faith is self-interest, navel-gazing, right? (laughs) As opposed to Christ-interest, being centered on Christ. It's, it's the vantage point by which we look at life which makes all of the difference, right? From which perspective do we view life and circumstance when they come upon us? If from the vantage point of self-interest, then anything that, is, uh, that, that seems unfair or wrong or as, you know, might, it might just seem as useless suffering, right? But if my vantage point is to look at life as the constant churning out of opportunity over and over again to proclaim Jesus to others, 
then anything is welcomed or, or it makes sense even when it doesn't seem to because in Jesus there is always purpose and there is always hope in every situation. The Christian vantage point is always looking at the world by way of the glory, the supremacy, and the sufficiency of Christ, which is why the Christian can accommodate suffering and persecution really well. You know, my friend Keith uh, reminded me of this on our backpacking trip this past week when he said this. He said, our problem is that we say we want Jesus as king, but we don't want to submit to his rule and especially not to suffer for his name. You know, we've been looking at Philippians written by the Apostle Paul. And remember what the Lord said to Ananias concerning Paul in Acts chapter 9. God said, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, he didn't say, I'll show him how much I'll satisfy his dreams and desires, (laughs) right? Right? He didn't say, I'll show him how I'll find him a wife or a husband or anything like that. He said, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. You know, in James chapter 4, it says you desire, but you do not have. So you kill, you covet, but you can't get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And Paul is the exact opposite of that, isn't he? He pursued the desires of God over and above uh, his own his own desires at all costs. And so what that tells us is that the desires of God in a difficult situation always supersede your need for relief or your desire for relief. Paul suffered much, right? He can speak loudly about this. He was led along countless dusty, hot roads. He was rejected. He was verbally attacked. He was shipwrecked. He was stoned. He was beaten. He was imprisoned and more. And through it all, He kept a vibrant, bold, courageous faith fueled by Christ's interest. I'd venture to guess that if he were here right now, you'd think Paul a little bit of a zealot in the modern sense of the word, right? You may not like him. He may be too much to hang around at times. He may offend your friends at dinner, making you uncomfortable as he shares Jesus with others with whom you've long neglected to share or you just don't even care to share with. I would think that no one left a conversation with Paul without hearing and seeing the gospel displayed in some way, shape, or form. Wouldn't you agree? You know, after we came off the trail this weekend, Keith and I had dinner in a restaurant in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. Really nice little town. And at first I was embarrassed because Keith was asking the waitress about her tattoos, which I thought was too personal. But I soon realized he was opening the door for me to share the gospel with her via my own tattoos. And, you know, I, I was challenged by that. It was an opportunity to look at what could have been just a dinner between two friends after a long hike as also an opportunity to share Jesus with a woman who may otherwise have never have heard it. So we did. We shared the gospel with her. Amen to that, baby. (laughs) But it's true. We want a king. But we don't want to necessarily give our lives to his purposes and especially not to suffer for his name. 
We don't want Jesus to interrupt dinner or risk our position at work or come between long-term friendships. We want to be saved, but the cloak of responsibility as disciples weighs heavily on our shoulders, doesn't it? We don't want to be the conduit of salvation for others because, you know, to be honest, it's just not PC these days. But Acts 14.22 says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And Paul models this for us in all ways as he's both willing to suffer and to share the good news of Jesus. Paul models a courage in faith to us more than most as he speaks to the Philippians from a Roman prison. A prison, by the way, that is prophesied for him well before this in Acts chapter 22 or 21, where it says, A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming over to us, he took Paul's belt and he tied his own hands and feet with it. And he said, the Holy Spirit says in this way with uh, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? (laughs) I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the sake of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Right? What do you do with a hard head, right? You say, ah, go ahead. Do what you want to do. The Lord's will be done. (laughs) Right? And that's the way Paul was. Even before his imprisonment, from which he now writes to the Philippians, he exhibited a great courage and devotion to the glory of Christ. The prophecy was correct, but the conclusion that they drew from it wasn't. It's because it's always our thought that God would never call us to suffer. But is that a biblical notion? Because nothing fazed Paul. Nothing knocked him off task. He walked headlong into suffering, and you must ask yourself, why or how could he do this? So let's find out as we continue in this letter uh, to the Philippians in chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, where Paul writes this. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Amen to that, right? As a result, it has become clear through the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become what? They've become confident. Right? You'd think he's him being in prison wouldn't make you confident. But... It is. It makes them confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Amen. So Paul's vantage point is to clearly see life and whatever it brings as opportunity to to advance the gospel. Willing to go through any hardship for the sake of that. You know, backpacking to me is a spiritual metaphor. You know, hiking up 13,000, 14,000 mile mountains isn't easy. And sometimes it's just one foot in front of the other. You're so tired and you don't think you have another ounce of energy, but you can do it anyway. But you'll never see the heights and you'll never have that great sense of accomplishment if you're not ready to be out of breath or have blisters or to sweat and to carry your weight in your backpack up that mountain. It's always worth it. It is absolutely stunning. And this time it reminded me of what Paul said in Hebrews 12, 
when he said, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance, perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, there's, this is the Christ interest part, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. You know, to backpack well, you pare down. I'm a minimalist when I backpack. I take as as little as I possibly can. You pare down. You take only the essentials. And and it's the same with the Christian life, isn't it? Take only what what is needed to sustain you. Don't get trapped in all the stuff of the world. Get rid of the sin which entangles you and strive towards the, the prize of Christ's glory in life. You know, as Paul climbs the metaphorical mountain of faith, two different people are affected in this story, right? All of those non-believers in the palace guard and everywhere else that Paul's surrounded by and, and who may have never heard about the gospel otherwise, uh, you know, unless he was incarcerated. And secondly, all those more timid believers who would, who would be emboldened by Paul's example to them, who might be saying, well, if Paul can do this, I can do this. They're becoming confident in the Lord to proclaim the gospel without fear. You know, movements take leaders, right? And Paul is an exceptional leader. The first person to run headlong into the line, uh, off the line into the ranks of the enemy is the one to inspire courage in his brothers and sisters. And that's exactly what Paul does for us. But notice, everyone on either side of the fence believer or non-believer, are keenly aware of the injustice that is perpetrated upon Paul here. Right? He's not in prison for anything he's done wrong, but only for his allegiance to Jesus. That is it. That's, That's the only thing. Coffee. You know, in the book, uh, The Insanity of God, great book if you want to read it, but it's called The Insanity of God by Nick Ripken. Nick, Nick tells this story of, of a guy named Dmitri in Russian, Russia who was locked up with 1,500 hardened criminals for years. He was tortured, he was beaten repeatedly, and all for the crime of just being a Christian. And so to get out, all he had to do was to sign a false confession which had a denial of Christ in it. And from the very first day he entered prison to his very last when he left, he stood every single morning and he sung the same worship song to Jesus out loud to the whole prison. And he did this while 1,500 hardened prisoners jeered and yelled and ridiculed and banged things on their, on their uh, jail cells. And every time he was out in the yard or or in the dining hall or whatever it was, and he found a scrap of paper, he'd scribble a Bible verse or Bible verses or stories that he could remember on it, and then he would take it back to his tiny cell and he would stick it to this post in his cell as an offering to Christ. And when a guard would come in that day and see it, he'd first read what was written, and then he would take it down and throw it away, and then he would beat Dimitri for it. And this went on for years, until in an effort to finally break Dimitri, the guards lied to him. They told him that his wife had been murdered and that his kids had been taken by the state, and he'd never see them again. And so Dimitri was devastated. And after years of torture, this was his breaking point, and he asked the guards to bring the document for him to sign the next day. And they prepared it for the next morning. 
And Dimitri spent that night in anguish that he, he would even consider denying Christ to get out of jail. But hours away in their home, Dimitri's wife and kids and other Christian friends were actually fine. Nothing wrong with them. And they sensed his despair. By the power of the Holy Spirit, they sensed that Dimitri was really going through a very difficult night. And they gathered together in his house to pray for his strength. And miraculously, the Holy Spirit allowed Dimitri, way back in his cell, hours away, to audibly hear the prayers of his family while he was in his cell. And the next morning, the jailer showed up. And Dimitri said, I'm not signing a thing. (laughs) You guys lied to me. I know my wife and kids are fine. I know that they're praying for me right now. God allowed me to hear their prayers last night in my cell. And they were absolutely incensed. And the next day, Dimitri found a full sheet of paper with a pencil laying right beside it in the yard. A little miracle itself, right? And he said he knew that it might be foolish, but he took it back to his cell and he wrote down every hymn and Bible verse and story he could remember on on it, and then he stuck it to that post in his cell. And that was it. The guards were incensed. They came in, they saw it, they read it, they pulled it down, they threw it out, and they said, we're going to execute you. We can't have any more of you. And as they led him through the prison and out to the yard to be executed that day, all all 1,500 prisoners stood up in their cell and they sang At the top of their voices, they sang that worship song that Dimitri had been singing for years every single morning. And at that, the jailers let go of Dimitri in terror. And they said, who are you? And he answered, I am a child of God, and Jesus is his name. And so they returned him to his cell, and not soon after, he was released. You know, Nick met with a lot of Christians in Russia who had suffered for Christ, and they stood well under that persecution. And he sat in a room one day with a number of them, including Dimitri, and each had been in jail for some lengthy period of time for their faith, one year to three years to five years to seven years, whatever it was. And he listened to all their stories, and and then he asked them, why haven't you written down these stories? It's like Scripture come to life. And at that moment, One man took him to an east-facing window and he asked him to look out and he said, Nick, how many times have you woken your children before dawn and said, let's watch the sunrise? And Nick said, never, never done that. But he didn't get the guy's point right away. The man meant that just like the sun rising and setting every single day, so it is with their suffering in Russia for the sake of the gospel. It's a way of life for them. They don't write down the stories because it's normal everyday life to suffer for Jesus. The the miracles are normal. Now isn't that an encouragement to your faith? When you hear stories of others withstanding such extremes for Jesus, doesn't it make sharing the gospel with others around you a little bit more doable? (laughs) Right? I think it does for me. Think about all the prisoners who heard, who heard Dimitri sing and, or, or, or heard the gospel from him as he sung or as he shared with them in word. Every guard who read the verses daily stuck to the wall of Dimitri's cell. Probably the only Bible that they had ever read. Dimitri and the others didn't scream injustice for years as they sat there in those prisons. He didn't get angry and go around telling his fellow inmates how unjustly he's being treated all the time. They knew that. 
He sang. He wrote scripture from memory. He prayed and he witnessed. And like Dimitri, as Paul's incarcerated for no other reason than his faith, he doesn't kick and scream and cry injustice. Rather, he sees it as an epic opportunity to witness. Because worldly justice isn't our goal as Christians. But the glory, the grace, and the word of Christ are. God's glory, God's mission. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says this clearly. He writes, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Amen to that. You know, we speak up when we see injustice meted out upon others. And we may even point it out when it happens to us, as Paul did at other places. But we don't expect it or demand it when it's obviously not going to be extended. We don't devolve into ranting and violence ourselves. Rather, we use moments as opportunity to express Jesus as King. We endure everything for the sake of Jesus in others. If Jesus leads us into suffering under some injustice and he leaves us there for a time, then he has reason for it. So we suffer well and we represent Jesus well. Paul continues in verse 15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here put here, listen to that, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. You know, some have asserted that These may have been established Jewish Gentile Christian leaders who feel eclipsed by Paul's intellect and spiritual presence when he comes to Rome, right? They're jealous. You know, as humble as he was, Paul was a force to be reckoned with. We pastors struggle with our pride, right? If Tim Keller walked into the room on Sunday morning, I'd be eclipsed. Although I don't think it would be his intention to do that to me, I would feel eclipsed by Tim Keller. You know, defense of the gospel. When Paul says defense of the gospel, that's the Greek word or the Greek term apologia. From from it, we get the word apology, which means a legal defense. Right? Not not blind faith. That's not what we, we, we proclaim here. But a clear defense of the facts which transpired in the life and the words and the death and the resurrection of Christ. Proclamation of the gospel is of central importance to the Christian. And when any other issue or ministry eclipses that in purpose, we have lost our Christ-centeredness, our Christ-centered vantage point. So we can say, it's not the messenger, but the message. It's not the proclaimer, but the proclamation, which has power. Even preachers who do it wrongly or out of selfish motives are often used by the Holy Spirit to bring salvation in a person's life. 
Our intent should always be to preach well and out of right motive. But honestly, we don't always do that. Thanks be to God who can bring good through all things, right? For instance, I'd never send someone to certain preachers in this world to hear the gospel. But I do know that God has used some of those preachers for people to come to know Christ. I don't get that, but I rejoice in it. You know, so Paul says he's put there. That term put here is also translated as appointed, right? In verse 16, it was a military term for a soldier on watch. Paul is placed there by his commander. He's stationed there by the king. It's used metaphorically of one's being appointed to a task. Paul's imprisonment and trial in Rome was no accident at all. Paul isn't put there because somebody in the government wanted to simply mete out injustice on him. Neither was Dimitri put in prison by the will of some Russian official. It was for the purposes of bringing glory to Christ. It was the predetermined plan of God. We are appointed in these instances to proclaim Jesus and the proclamation of Christ is worth the suffering of the Christian because it is about Jesus' glory and not about us. And if we struggle with how God might call us to such suffering and not relieve it, we might need to go back to the very foundational principles which govern our relationship to Him. In our sin, we deserve only death. And in His mercy and His grace, we receive life. Christ is King. And as such, He gets to define life and values and beliefs and morality and sexuality and finance and life choices and everything for the Christian. And so I submit and follow, not seeking my own desires in this world, but working for the will of my King. And it is very, very helpful for us to see our lives in the same theological worldview as does Paul. You know, even being attacked from within, Paul rejoices that Christ is preached. Think about that, right? When you're attacked from all around, when you experience injustice, when your rights are trampled and your life's in danger, do you rejoice in the fact that it all serves to glorify Jesus? Do you have integrity of faith to be incarcerated and say, I rejoice that this is happening so that Jesus might be preached? Paul does. And he continues for us. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, he says. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect a hope that will in no way be, be that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, he says. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. 
Now that term progress he uses in verse 25, he also uses in 1 Timothy 4.15. It had two primary meanings which relate to Paul's use of the term. It, it, it was a military term for the advancement of troops through rough terrain by means of the advance of scouts removing barriers along the way. It was used by Greek philosophers or the Stoics as a catchword for the difficult path that is to, to find wisdom. And so we see that although the gospel progresses, it is sometimes difficult work. It really is. Like Paul, if we pray with sincerity though, Father, glorify your name. We can be sure of the same answer Jesus got in John 12, 28, when he asked the same and the Father answered him, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. (laughs) Paul's whole attitude and demeanor towards life is to find joy in the advancement of Christ by whatever means, even if that means his own suffering or even death. He's like John the Baptist when he said the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him, and he is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. The joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less, he says. And that's what this passage communicates so clearly. A sincere joy that Christ increases above my own life and own desires. When we make Christ's glory our desire and design, we make it our expectation and our hope. If it is really aimed at, really truly aimed at, it will be attained. Some may feel Paul's being sort of morbidly expectant of death in this passage, but that would be a shallow view of his words. Because death is a great loss to a worldly person without Christ, because they lose all comfort and hope. But to a Christian, it's gain. It's the end of all weakness and misery, and it's the perfection of comfort and the accomplishment of hope. It delivers them from all the evils of life and brings into possession the chief good, which is Jesus. It was a hope and a comfort for the thief hanging next to Christ to hear Jesus say in Luke 23, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's better that he said that than I'm going to let you off the cross. So, believers will honor God with their bodies or not at all. Believers will honor God with their bodies, with their voices, with their minds, or not at all. For the Greeks, the body was evil. For Paul, it was sort of morally neutral, but it was was and is the battleground of temptation and the place for honoring and glorifying Christ. And we get tripped up protecting our bodies and protecting our rights. Paul may have been incarcerated, but his life was already Christ to own. Christ already owned him. And we must consider our lives as the same. So in conclusion... Like Paul, Dimitri, and many others throughout history, look at life from the vantage point of Jesus as King. Grasp every opportunity, good, bad, difficult, or easy, as a chance to glorify Him. Place the desires of your King over and above your own. Find joy in the fact that you've been chosen to suffer for Him and that your life is worth glorifying Jesus no matter the cost. Pray against fear and anxiety. Pray to be convicted that your life's no longer your own. It is to the glory of Christ. 
The glory of Christ ought to be the end of our life, the grace of, uh, uh, the grace of Christ, the principle of our life, and the word of Christ, the rule of it. The Christian life is derived from Christ and directed towards Christ, and he is the principle, the rule, and the end of it. And I hope I can hear an amen to that. Amen. Love you guys. Miss you. Hope to see you soon. And I hope this was an encouragement to you. God bless, and I will see you next week.